This morning, we are continuing our summer series entitled Benedictions, Doxologies, and Prayers. And this morning, we're going to consider the last benediction that's offered in the Bible. It's actually the last verse of the Bible. Many of us are familiar with the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, the way that lays a foundation for all that the Bible will say about God and his created world and redemption in it. But I wonder how many of us are familiar with that last verse and the way it's meant to shape our lives here and now as we await Christ's return. And so with that, let's stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, this great final benediction of God's word. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its simplicity and also its rich depth. We pray this morning that you give a sense of us, a sense to us of that. And may you fix our eyes on Jesus, the one in whom we have received grace upon grace. In his name we pray, amen. Several years ago, my wife's mother, Liz, was diagnosed with a severe brain disease. And over a course of about three years, she lost her ability to walk, lost her fine motor skills, lost the ability to speak, ultimately lost her life. But before she died, and before really many of those symptoms took root, knowing that she was going to experience these losses, she gave our kids an incredibly sweet gift. She gave them a book, this book called Guess How Much I Love You by Sam McBratney. And it's a sweet book, but what's very special about this book is that it's a recordable audiobook. She recorded herself reading the book to the children so that as they would open it, whether gone by distance or gone with her speech, or ultimately after her death, the kids could continue hearing her read the familiar refrain, I love you this much. Familiar words, but in the context of illness and death, incredibly significant as they heard her read them to them. In a similar way, the passage before us is not unique in content, but in context. The content of this verse, which says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, the content is incredibly familiar. Almost verbatim, this is repeated seven times throughout the New Testament. But set here as the last verse of the Christian canon, as the last verse of God's word to us, it takes on special significance. And I want to help us see that this morning by, by seeing this verse in context of the whole. So if you have your Bible, or if you can use your pew Bible in the racks in front of you, I'd like you to open it up and turn to page 1041. It's to page 1041. It's Revelation 21. While you turn there, I'm going to quickly summarize what happened and catch you up to speed in the first 1,040 pages. <laughs> Give me 60 seconds. 
The Bible is the story from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's the story of life with Jesus Christ, our King. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2, part one of the Bible, as it were, with God bestowing good life, giving good life to us in Jesus Christ. Part two of the Bible then, if we break it down to six parts, part two becomes life with Jesus. Our experience of that life is broken by sin. It's Genesis chapter three. Part three of the Bible from Genesis three, verse 15, all the way to the end of Malachi is the promise of restored life in Jesus. It's the story of the Old Testament of a coming Messiah who would restore God's people to himself. Part four of the Bible is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, in which restored life to Jesus is provided. He comes to earth. He dies upon the cross. In victory of atonement, he's raised again to new life. And then the remainder of the Bible, almost the entire remainder of the Bible, from the book of Acts to Revelation chapter 20, is the proclamation of life with Jesus. The church sent and scattered as witnesses to the ends of the earth telling the good news that life with Jesus is possible for all who believe. And that brings us here to Revelation chapter 21 to these last two chapters of the Bible in which we get a glimpse of what will be when Christ returns. When Christ returns, that's the sixth and final part of the story of the Bible. Restored life with Jesus Christ finally and forever fulfilled. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. If you look at these two chapters, chapter 21 through chapter 22, verse 5, we read a description of what life with Jesus will be like. It's incredible. Here's a sample, verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's beautiful. Then in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6 and running through verse 19, if you flip over, we read this, this final testimony of the trustworthiness of all that God has said in the book of Revelation, but in the Bible as a whole. Verses 6 and 7 there say this. It says, he said to me, this is an angel to John who wrote this book, said, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then the last two verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20 and 21, verse 20, is this beautiful, famous prayer of anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that would be an awesome place for the Bible to end. It would be great. Come, Lord Jesus. But the Bible doesn't end there. It gives us one more verse. 
a verse that almost redirects our gaze from the distant future to the very present, to this day. And God says to us, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This final verse isn't a lesson. It's not a command to do something. It's not a prayer. It's a promise. It's a promise. And with these words, God assures us of the promise that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. While Jesus may tarry in his return, his grace will not. It's with us. Each of us needs the grace of Jesus with us in unique ways, but there are three ways that we all hold in common as God's people, as the church, living in this age of anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ, this age of the proclamation of God's word to the nations. There are three ways in which we together need the God, the grace of God with us, how we need to remember it and for it to be active in it. And so this is what we're going to consider briefly this morning, three ways we need the grace of the Lord Jesus with us here and now. First, we need the grace of the Lord Jesus with us in our struggle with sin. We need it in our struggle with sin. What is sin? Sin is our failure to live under the authority of the God who has revealed himself in his word. It's our failure to live according to the rules and the commandments and the testimonies and the ways that he has revealed to us in his word. As I mentioned a moment ago, our life with Jesus Christ the King has been broken by sin. It's not hard to see and to grasp the reality of sin in our world. We saw an incredibly tragic display of it in El Paso yesterday. It's convincing reminder that our world is broken. Our world is filled with hate and with strife and with sin. But sin is not only a reality out there in the world, it's a reality in us. For those who are not Christians, you're enslaved to sin. It's your master, you can't help but to sin. For those of us who are believers, we're not enslaved to sin, but it still wages war against us, regularly pitting us into temptation, and sin. The reality of our sin in our world and in our lives isn't hard to grasp, but what is hard to grasp, what is hard to remember, is God's solution to sin, grace. What is grace? Culturally, this is the way we tend to first think of it, culturally, grace is viewed as generous kindness to someone who may not deserve it. It's not necessarily given to to someone who, who deserves favor, deserves affirmation, deserves love. Someone who's gracious extends kindness to them despite the fact that they don't really deserve it. And if we layer that, that thin kind of cultural kindness version of grace onto our relationship with God to the problem of our sin and the need for salvation, we may often perceive God's grace to simply be his kind assistance to us, where our morality and strength and spiritual good falls short, he gives us grace to carry us the rest of the way. 
Perhaps an illustration would help. At the beginning of the summer, I began working out regularly with a group of young adults from our church. And I hate to admit this, but I still can't do a pull-up. One of our elders told me after the first service, don't admit that. Don't admit that. But this is a safe place. This is a safe place. I know you'll still love and accept me. I'm working on it, but I can't yet do the complete pull-up on my own. And so what I do is take a giant rubber band, strap it around the pole, put my left foot in it, and it buoys me just enough to do the the reps, the 10 or 20 or 30 pull-ups. It's a strong rubber band. Sometimes we might view God's grace as a divine rubber band that where our weakness and goodness fails, it gives us just enough bounce and lift to be acceptable to God the Father. That is not grace. That is not good news. It's not the truth of our condition. The biblical definition of grace is not partially deserved kindness or assistance from God. It's wholly undeserved love and salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn in that Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 976. Ephesians 2, Paul gives this incredibly rich, comprehensive picture of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In that beautiful passage, you see three themes come out about grace. Number one, it comes in the context not of our goodness, but of our depravity, of our sin. Verse one says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses literally contributing nothing to our restoration to God the Father. Number two, we see that grace comes in the context only of the work of Jesus Christ. Grace is not some divine gift of the Father that he can dispose at will. It comes through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You see that in verses five through seven. You see it especially in the previous chapter, in chapter one, verse seven, which says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There is no grace from God without Jesus. There's no grace from God without the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood shed for us in full and final atonement for sin. Number three, we see in this passage that that grace makes the language of salvation gifting language, not earning language. It is the gift of God. 
to all who believe, receiving the gift by faith. Now, what is it about our struggle with sin and about the promise of grace that is so necessary and so special in this present age, in this age of awaiting the return of the king? Why is it that we need the remembrance of the presence of this grace with us here and now? There's lots of ways to answer that. Revelation, the book of Revelation, does it like this. It reminds us from chapter 1 to 20, it reminds us that we as God's church are at war. We are at war with Satan who cannot undo the reality of grace, cannot undo the atonement that Jesus has accomplished once and for all, but what he can do is deceive and distract. He can seek to shift the eyes of the church away from Jesus and onto the things of this world. And so in the beginning of Revelation, the book begins by recounting the sins of the church in this age. It uses seven churches laid out geographically almost in a circle to represent the church universal in time and space. And it reminds us that in this age, we as God's people continue in sin. The church at Ephesus lost its love for Jesus. The church at Pergamum and Thyatira were were teaching false doctrine and practicing immorality. Notice the connection between those things, between false doctrine and immoral living. The church at Sardis and Laodicea, what were they guilty of? Spiritual apathy. Simply being tossed to and fro with the things of this world. Not girded and strong with the gospel of grace. And in so many ways, those those sins that are depicted there in those seven churches represent things we continue to struggle with individually and as a church. And through the rest of the book of Revelation, we read about how Satan, through the dragon and the woman and the city of Babylon, continues to distract and deceive us as the church from trusting that the grace of Jesus is sufficient to forgive us and cleanse us and renew us from all those sins. That the grace of Jesus finally and forever wins against Satan's schemes. Revelation 12, 17 says, Satan makes war on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. We are at war to cling to the gospel of grace, the testimony of Jesus' grace to us. And so what are we to do in that war? How do we gird ourselves? You can see the the picture of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Lots of defensive weapons, an offensive weapon in the word of God, though. We're to preach the word to ourselves, preach the gospel of grace as found in God's word to ourselves again and again and again. We're to to sing it to each other, Ephesians says. We're to pray for its reality to take grips in our hearts. We're to do what the, the hymn writer of before the throne of God above commends. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, see Jesus there who made an end to all my sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. What's amazing is that the book of Revelation preaches this message to us again and again and again. It does it even in the vocabulary that it uses to describe who Jesus is. Do you know what the most common name for Jesus is in the book of Revelation? It's not lion, that's used one time. It's not Christ, that's used seven times. It's not the simple name Jesus, which is used 12 times. 27 times is the title Lamb a title which in and of itself reminds us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world perfectly and permanently. And so we can look forward to Jesus' return because we have confidence that in Him, in the Lamb of God who was slain for us, we have salvation, full and complete to all who believe. We can look forward to his return because we know that is how much he loves us. That he would go to the cross, enduring the shame for joy set before him of redeeming a people to himself. We can join in the heavenly chorus one day singing their songs of worship to the Lamb, which notice are all about how the Lamb was slain. From Revelation 5, 9 through 13, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe. It's not a doctrinal statement, that's a doxological statement. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so the book of Revelation ends with this verse, this reminder of God's grace And it ends a few verses before with this beautiful invitation to trust in God's grace. This beautiful invitation to come to Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 17. The author says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price the water of life, the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is yours in Jesus Christ without price, without contribution, simply by faith. It's the gift of God to all who believe. And so how we need the grace of the Lord Jesus with us as we struggle with sin to remember that promise and to trust in it despite Satan's schemes. Secondly, we need the grace of the Lord Jesus as we experience suffering. In this present age, we are not only engaged in a struggle with sin, but we are also afflicted with suffering. Suffering is a universal human experience. In general, those in the global West attempt to address suffering head-on by fixing it. Those in the East attempt to address suffering by indirectly focusing on the invisible and the eternal. Neither of those things solves the problem of suffering. Nothing we do can solve it. And the Bible reveals that 
as we are embedded in it, as we suffer in this world, it is God who is actually sovereign over all things, including our suffering, and he's present with us in the midst of suffering. He even uses suffering to deepen our faith. Look at the stories of Joseph and Moses and David and Jesus. He uses suffering for our good in his divine mercy and mystery. So what is it about our experience of suffering in this present age that makes this promise of grace so significant? Well, the book of Revelation is written to people who are in a heightened mode of suffering. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are scattered and oppressed. And it's in this age that that those churches and we ourselves, because we as a church are caught up in this book, where we ourselves may doubt the sufficiency of God's grace for every trial. Whether it is an ordinary trial of human life like illness or relational strife or financial and material need, whether it is a spiritual trial of persecution for faith as the churches in Revelation were experiencing and as so many still today experience, whatever the trial, we can doubt, we can doubt that God and his grace is truly sufficient. We can sometimes listen to the voice of Satan saying, did God really say, as he did in the garden? Can God really sustain me through this suffering? Is he really the Lord? Is he really the powerful ruler of all? But remember what this last verse says. It doesn't say the grace of Jesus be with you. Who does it say? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Jesus is Lord and King and ruler over all. He reigns over your suffering. He told his disciples that. He says in John 16, on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't sustain us in our suffering like that giant rubber band simply buoying us where we are weak in our faith and weak in our endurance. Jesus solves the problem of our suffering by himself entering into it and overcoming it through his cross and through his resurrection. In the same way that God's grace to us in Jesus accounts for every struggle of sin, it accounts also for every experience of suffering. Jesus has overcome the world. He is Lord. He rules over every rock and ocean and ant. He's redeeming every illness and injustice and need. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 remind us, as Jesus said to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace allows us to endure suffering of all kinds. God's grace will one day end all our suffering. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grace of Jesus is with us in our suffering, and 
Last but not least, the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us as we spread the gospel. The Christian life in this age, in this present age of anticipating Christ's return is not merely a reactive mode of life in which we are reacting and enduring and bearing with sin and suffering. It's also a proactive season of life for the church of Jesus Christ. We are on mission. We are called to go from Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when Jesus commissions his disciples and say, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth from all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth, so that continues until this day and until Jesus returns. We are called to go and to tell. Our calling is to spread the gospel, and grace motivates us to spread the gospel. Grace enables the gospel to work because it moves on the hearts of those that we proclaim his grace to, changing them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, opening eyes that are blind, Grace is at work in our spread of the gospel, but here's how we especially need to remember grace in this context, in this age of proclaiming the king and proclaiming his grace. Number one, we need to remember his grace is what is at work because any fruit we see in the ministry of this church and of the church universal, any fruit we see of believers saved, of people sent, is not the result of our work. It's not the result of our skill. It's not the result of our efforts. It's the result purely, wholly of God's grace. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, it gives this beautiful picture of the early church, describes their unity, their material unity, and their missional unity in proclaiming the gospel, and it was fueled by God's grace. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. We must not think for one second that they could have done that without God's grace. We must not think for one second that we can do that apart from God's grace. Not by our skill or learning or resources, not by a new building. Only by God's grace is the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ extended to our community, city, and world. Only God has the power of changing hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and giving the gift of faith to all who he's called to himself. We have to remember our complete dependence on his grace. Second, the spread of the gospel, this proclamation of the kingdom, this message of grace, it is itself what will lead to the return of Jesus Christ. As we proclaim the gospel, as it goes to every tribe, tongue, and nation, then will come to pass what is written. Matthew 24, 14, it says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We don't know exactly how that works. We don't know exactly what it means by when it arrives in all nations. We certainly don't know exactly when that will happen but we trust that it will. And how we need God's grace to preach God's grace to those whom God's grace is calling unto himself from all people. The grace of the Lord Jesus is with us as we spread the gospel.
And at the conclusion of each worship service here, one of the ministers pronounces a benediction over us. We'll do that in just a few moments. And as the benediction is pronounced, you may notice that different people in the room adopt different postures for the benediction. Some keep their eyes open looking up. Some keep their eyes open looking straight ahead. Some close their eyes. Some lift out their hands with palms open as if to receive from God through posture the promise of the benediction. So the, the, the million-dollar question is, well, which way is right? What am I supposed to do? Well, what matters is not posture. What matters is are you receiving and responding to the promise of God contained in the benediction? Do you understand it? More than that, do you believe it? More than that, are you being transformed by it? Are you prepared to walk out the doors different because of the promise of God? Perhaps because of this promise of God, that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with you all. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it guides and nourishes and sustains and equips us for every good work. Father, may it equip us as we fight against sin, as together we endure through great suffering, as we, by your grace, proclaim your gospel to all people. Father, we long for your kingdom to come. We long to see the day in which Christ returns and we are with him face to face as has been the long promise of your word. And Father, until that great day, we pray that you would help us to be faithful workers, faithful witnesses, dependent on your grace for all things until you return or call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.